Welcome to We Are Already Free, a podcast helping down-to-earth seekers and free people to live their truth and be the change, rather than spending too much time fighting against what they don't want. Have you ever felt like you just don't have what it takes to be a healthy, vibrant human living a life of meaning? Like maybe you missed the boat or it's just too late for you. Today's guest is a powerful invitation and reminder that healing and sovereignty are always just a choice, an inflection point, a decision away. Thomas P. Seeger, a PhD, is an associate professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. His teaching and research is focused on a new approach to personal development called self-actual engineering, which is about redesigning ourselves, our relationships, and our lives to realize more of our fullest potential. He's the CEO of Morozco Forge, an ice bath cold plunge I would really love to get my hands on and my body into. I discovered him, first of all, when I was researching around health and testosterone and exercise and how to combine ice baths and exercise, and he goes into that in this episode. Thomas shares the story of how he went from being obese and lost in his middle age to taking responsibility for his health, his life, and his choices. He tells a funny and touching story of how he accidentally ended up in a ballet class, which he then went on to attend for over a year. Um, Near the end of this episode, Thomas shares a heartbreaking story of the horrific impact of generational trauma and also how we can start to heal this terrible kind of epidemic or real problem in the world today, something that affects all of us and what we can do about it. Because it's like, how do we navigate when we've had trauma that comes to us through our parents, it's not even something we directly experienced or our grandparents or their parents. And Thomas comes and talks about this at the end. I really honor his courage in sharing his vulnerability and authenticity with us. And I'm really deeply grateful to have had this chance to chat with him. And I also just really want to honor that towards the end, it gets very emotional. Thomas shares something that is clearly deeply meaningful for him. And I just want to hold space and ask that you hold space for it and also to know that you may be in tears by the end of this. So if you're driving or something, just uh, (laughs) take some deep breaths, pull over, have a good cry and carry on your way. (laughs) So there are links to Thomas's work and the books and everything else that we discuss in the show notes. So you can just go to alreadyfree.me forward slash 007. So that's just alreadyfree.me forward slash 007 for the episode links to all the different platforms wherever you listen and also just check the the actual show notes where you are listening now and thanks again to all of you who are sharing to anyone who's sharing subscribing leaving reviews it's making a big difference and here's a beautiful one from frogs been had great username loving your podcast so uplifting in these heavy times i look forward to each thursday now i also look forward to each thursday so thank you so much for listening thank you for leaving a review And finally, uh, stick around to the end to hear some next steps that I'll share to support you on your path. If this episode resonates with you, just want to give you some options or ways that you could move forward um, with whatever we discuss in this episode. So now may you find what you seek in this episode with the wonderful Thomas P. Seeger. 
I I'm so interested in in your story. I've been following you for a while. Your newsletters I find particularly just so interesting and so valuable. Um, your story around testosterone and ice baths and exercise like that blew my mind. And so there's multiple directions we could take this in. But I think the first thing I'd really love to cover is. I, I'm sure that I read somewhere, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that at some point you were obese. And to me, like when I read that, I was like, this dude, how's that? You look so healthy. And I'm just wondering, like, what was that trajectory? What happened for you? And yeah, just if we could get that little introduction. Some of the things that come up for me are childhood. I was always a fat kid. At least my memory is always of being a fat kid. But sometimes when I look back at the pictures of me, you know, when I'm six or seven, I wasn't fat at that age. I got fat when, um, at an age when I became more aware of myself. In the United States, it would be middle school. So this is uh, six, seven, eight grade, uh, let's say 12 or 13 years old. And I do think that children, we go through different developmental stages at which um, in those early teenage years, maybe preteen or early teen, we're very self-conscious. Peer relationships mean everything to us. And we're just beginning to get a sense of identity. But I remember uh, being in first grade um, and realizing that I was, so that, you know, for me that was six or five or something, realizing that I was fatter than the other boys uh, were. And I also, now that I've learned a lot more about nutrition and I've learned a lot more about health I realized what happened when my mother read Diet for a Small Planet. Are you familiar with this book? I've never heard of it. Well, unfortunately, my parents met in graduate school at Harvard University. I'm a university professor. My parents were highly educated. And Harvard is one of these liberal institutions. This goes back decades. Harvard was the center of um, a lot of the... I can't even call it science. A lot of the work that was being done in nutrition in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they gave us these serious misconceptions that now look like big food propaganda. Hmm. My mother believed that margarine was healthier than butter. What a tragic, right? <laughs> my mother thought that, she, I remember her telling me she was scolding me because my best friend in first grade, he was very fast and he was very thin. And... Um, he used to eat eggs. He, his mother taught him how to cook. We had a sleepover. We're cooking eggs. And my mother said, well, he can eat eggs, but you can't because you're, there's too much cholesterol. They're too fat. You're already too fat. She fed me Lucky Charms. She fed me the breakfast cereals that were, you know, advertised on the Saturday morning cartoons. And of course, what kid doesn't want marshmallows for breakfast? And my mother thought, that because they sprayed vitamins on these things, that they must be more nutritious than eggs and bacon and beef and things that are good for you. So I grew up with my mother's sort of ideology that came out of this liberal, you know, now we would call it progressive or woke, but came out of what I'm calling the food propaganda machine that was centered around Harvard and other prestigious universities who had been hired to promote industrial foods instead of natural foods. And my metabolism was this messed up combination of margarine and marshmallows. 
What did I know? <laughs> then I went away to school, um, engineering school. I was very young at the time. This was 17. I was a freshman in school. I hadn't even finished growing yet. And uh, I remember this because I you know, met my friends on my dorm floor. And by the end of the year, I was an inch taller than these guys that I was the same height at the beginning of the year. I uh, didn't care much for the lectures. So we spent most of physics class in the racquetball court, you know, because it was easy to get a court when everybody else was in physics, I guess. Um, and this is the irony. Most people go to college and they complain about the dorm food. But now I was free from, you know, my family's ideas about what I was supposed to be eating. And I was, uh, I still ate some breakfast cereal, but it wasn't Lucky Charms. And I could have all the eggs I wanted. And uh, I was getting a lot of exercise. I really leaned out. Now, part of that is that's the age that I was. But I had, talk about free. Uh, it was all I could eat. There was no food scarcity anymore. And I had to make a lot of adjustments about uh, my relationship with food. I was fortunate that um, I leaned out quite a bit. Now, I have three degrees, because you got to do that to become a university professor. So I did an undergraduate, and I moved away. And then I went back for graduate school, that I moved away. And then I went back for my PhD. And uh, I started my PhD kind of late. I was 29. And by that time, I was married. I had two kids. But in the 20s, you, you, if you're smart, you're very conscious about where are you in the dating marketplace, you know? And at an engineering school where three-quarters of the students are men, this was a competitive environment. I stayed in fairly good shape. I was never thin, but um, I was playing a lot of sports with my friends and enjoying that. But by the time I went back, um, now I'm a family man, and I had an idea of what it meant to be a good husband and a good father. And I did not realize this until much later um, that I got fat again. I topped out at about 249, and I'm barely six feet tall. It's not healthy. Um, but one of the things that happened to me was as a teacher and being on a college campus, um, I'm, you know, I'm surrounded by lots of young people. And I thought in my head, that um, one of the ways, I don't think it was just laziness on my part, but one of the ways to be faithful, to be a good husband and a good father was to somehow make myself unattractive. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on in my head, but it simplified my life to get fat and ugly. Uh, it turned out to also be uh, ripping off my wife. Like, on the one hand, I removed myself from any kind of um, sexual flirtation, interaction with any other women. And on the one hand, even though uh, when I went back to school, I was old for a PhD student, I was teaching and I was young for a faculty member, you know, 30. I just didn't have to, I was teaching in engineering. There aren't a lot of uh, women students, but in my own self-conscious brain, I simplified lots of things by being a fat dad. Well, then uh, I got to be, you know, my kids got up to high school age. So you got to fast forward 10 or 15 years later. And um, my wife, we're now living in Arizona. 
Uh, we're living in Phoenix. I'm teaching in Tempe at Arizona State. And my wife said she wasn't happy. And she wanted to go back to New York. And she wanted to take the kids. And, you know, our marriage, um, this had happened before. And at each interval, uh, it's sort of an inflection point at which um, I could be angry, I could be sad, lots of emotions come up. And this one was a little bit different because instead of me blaming her for being an alcoholic, for uh, failing to pull her own weight in the marriage or whatever story I have in my mind about everything that she's doing wrong and how uh, this crisis moment is all of her construction. I thought about who she married when we were 29 and I thought about who she was with right now. In other words, I empathized and empathy, this exercise of taking another person's perspective, it can be you can completely fail. You can construct a story in your mind and it's nothing but your own fictional account that has zero to you've created a character out of another person. So that can go wrong. Another thing that can go wrong is you project. You say, well, this is the way I think about it. This is the way I feel. And so the whole rest of the world must think that way too, which reduces you to the developmental state of a toddler, you know? Um, real empathy requires you to set aside whatever your own agenda is. And typically in a situation like that, it's going to hurt because uh, that setting aside means dissolving your ego. And even then, maybe you don't get it right, but you might get some insight. So I thought about it from her perspective. She married a guy who was handsome, fit, and had excellent prospects. I was never lean. Um, but, you know, when she married me, I was probably 195, six feet tall. And at, and at 195, I look okay. Right now, I'm 214. I weighed myself this morning, and um, I look okay. But... You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm still, I still feel, I still have the identity of a fat guy. And when I get on that body fat meter, it says 28%, which I know is another five pounds away from being, um, at least according to a body fat estimate, obese. So I'm, I'm not out of the woods. But at 29, she was stuck with a bespectacled, obese professor who didn't make a lot of money were chronically in debt, it wasn't where she thought she was going. So I sat her down and I said, um, you're going to see some changes in me. Um, I'm going to be getting myself back into shape. I'm going to be getting us on a stronger financial footing. I'm going to be upgrading my wardrobe, taking a little bit more pride in myself. Now, I still wasn't happy with her. Like all these other emotions, they still, you know, um, the anger, the sadness, the fear, they still come up. But in this conversation, it's not about her. Um, it's about what am I going to change? And so I said, this, these, you're going to see some changes. Now, we'd been married years, 16, 17 years um, and you can imagine that a wife hearing, so after 17 years, husband comes to her and says, well, there's going to be some changes. Nobody's going to believe that. 
She said, why are you telling me this? I said, because we're married. And when one person in a marriage starts making changes, the other person's going to notice. And I'm, I, I know you're going to notice. And I want you to know, to hear it from me about what's going on. But it wasn't full disclosure. Um, I had read a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And it sounds awful, you know. Why shouldn't we be nice to one another? And the answer in the book is because the typical nice guy is creating a bunch of covert contracts. If I do this, then she'll do that. She'll owe me this. Then I'll deserve or be entitled to that. The nice guy has these, these hidden agreements in his head that the rest of the world never agreed to. And then when they break the covert contract, whether it's your wife or whether it's your boss or anybody, it could be your kids, it happens a lot, then resentment like wells up in you. How dare they not do the thing that they never agreed to do? <laughs> and that no relationship can survive resentment. And so the no more Mr. Nice Guy is really about no more covert contracts, no more carrying around all these resentments about what the world and your wife and other people aren't giving you that you thought you deserved because you were a good boy. That's, you know, eight-year-old thinking, not adult thinking. So I'd read that book and I realized that if I wanted changes in my marriage and I wanted changes from my, in my life, I was going to have to lead those changes. Now, since then, there's a, a concept called the 10,000-foot tow rope. Have you ever heard this? No. Okay, so I got this from a guy uh, who's on YouTube. He's on uh, Twitter. He contacted me because of stuff that I write about my relationships and all this autobiographical stuff. And um, he's written, he's in the middle of his second book. He's deep in the red pill literature. And um, he used to be in the Canadian Navy. His name is Ryan Stone. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him on YouTube. Um, and he said, well, in the Navy, there's this concept called the 10,000-foot tow rope. You have a lead ship, and then you have a rope, and it goes to the ship that it's towing. When the lead ship makes a turn, well, 10,000 feet behind you, you know, it takes like a year for the towing ship to make the turn. And I didn't think of it this at the time, but it was a very helpful concept uh, to explain after the fact. I knew I was going to have to leave, but I didn't um, have an appreciation for how long would it take for my wife to follow. Some marriages, uh, you know, there's a 10,000 foot tow rope. In some marriages, it's a 10-foot tow rope. You're like, great, you wait a week, and then she's making changes too. Um, my marriage was a 10,000-foot tow rope. Six months, I was getting myself in shape. My daughter rode out. She had a trainer for you know, school sports, and uh, I asked her for exercises. Could you, know, could you show me some exercises? I'm going to go to the gym. You know? and she's like, Dad, this is great. And she got a sheet of paper, and she wrote at the top of it, the fat daddy workout and she started drawing and I thought that's the end of that like there's if I'm gonna do this there is no pride left I'm gonna go to one of these gyms you know suburban Phoenix where all these buff people are working out in their spandex high tech whatever I'm gonna walk in there a fat old man and I'm gonna do the exercises that my daughter told me to do because I want to change my life she was thrilled so she helped me out and uh 
you know, I did, I started making progress. I remember I was late to class. It was my, you know, weight training class that I'm going to do. And uh, it's a very popular class because I'm five minutes late. The room's already full. I'm like, ah, darn it. Well, I know there's a core class next door at this gym that I go to in the smaller room. And so I'm going to bust into the core class. I'm going to do that uh, today. So I run in, get my mat, middle of the room, and uh, music's already playing. And I look around, and it's all women. I'm like, this... (laughs) This is not the core class. If this is pregnancy Pilates or something, I'm screwed. They're doing a warm-up routine. And I'm like in the middle of this. What am I going to do? Run back out? I'm mortified just by the fact that I've drawn attention to myself. And I see one guy hiding up in the corner of the room. And he's stretching. I'm like, well, fuck it. I'm going to do this thing. It turned out to be a bar class. Now, I didn't know what bar was. B-A-R-R-E. I always thought that was called ballet. But, you know, the chicks who teach this stuff, they call it bar. And every once in a while, a dude will accidentally walk into a class that he thought was about barbells or something, and I'm doing plies and whatever, and it's fantastic. The instructor, she's beautiful, and she's lithe, and she's mixing in some of this martial arts stuff, and it's musical, and it's a hell of a workout. And I went up to her afterwards, and I said, what did I just do? And she said, oh, it's called Life Bar. You know, we do this and this. And she's uh, really selling it. I went to that class for a year. When I put away my mat that day, I didn't know this guy, but um, he passed me on the way out. He said... Thanks for staying. You know, he, I don't know if he was in the wrong room either, and I never saw him again. So a year, I go to this class, and I got down to about 205. And that was a good 40 pounds that I'd lost. I had to put myself on a diet, and I called it the great food diet. So it works like this. If it ain't great, I ain't eating it. I just don't eat that stuff. I had to make an identity shift and this identity shift was I'm going to turn myself into a food snob no margarine in my life there's no Doritos in my life there's like for me I could eat a donut but only if it was like a gourmet goddamn donut like when I went to Portland Oregon and they had the homemade donuts with the bacon stuff on or whatever the heck it was I'm going to eat the freaking donut because it's a great donut No, I don't eat donuts so much anymore, but I I put myself on the great food diet. And I remember going to a faculty lunch, and, you know, they have crap at these faculty lunches. And everybody's eating. And somebody said, oh, would you like half of my sandwich? You know, uh, did they run out of food? I see you're not eating. And I said, no, I'm eating everything I want to have right now, which was nothing. So... It was confusing sometimes for other people. Well, since then, like intermittent fasting has become like a huge thing. So if I go to a faculty lunch and I'm not eating, uh, I said, no, I'm fasting, you know, and everybody, oh, yeah, yeah, I read about that. I saw that on the Internet or something. But when they send me the little questionnaire, you know, about your dietary requirement, do you have any dietary restrictions? And now I always send it back and I say, yes, carnivore. And they don't know what to do. You know, they're like, can you eat gluten? No, I can't. Can you eat animals? No, I'm seventh level vegan and they would accommodate me or whatever. If I wrote, I can't eat anything that casts a shadow. They would say, okay, we're going to find earthworms for you or something like that. But I put down carnivore and 
they don't know what to do. There, it's not like there's going to be meat at the you know lunch, not no, in a serious exactly. way. Uh, so the food environment in which we live is mm. often oriented towards keeping us sick in the same way that my mother was putting margarine on the table instead of butter. Mm. So I lost a lot of weight, and I sat my wife down again. Uh, and this was six months later. And this was a, a different conversation. I said, uh, I no longer want to be married to an alcoholic. So you have a choice. You can sober up, you can get yourself in a program, and you can stay married, or you can be divorced. So this is an ultimatum. And it may not have been a wise choice because not a lot of marriages, not a lot of relationships, period, can survive an ultimatum. But mm. addiction is a bitch. And it wasn't just me that didn't want to be married to a drunk. It was, I didn't want my kids to have a drunk for a mother either. She, as you can imagine, protested. And I went into Al-Anon. But... Um, her older sister was very helpful, took her to AA, got her going, got her into the big book. She sobered right up, lost 20 pounds, got herself off her blood pressure medication and divorced me. So oh, wow. that was, I mean, she took A and B you know, and she kind of combined them into her own uh, recipe. And that's what I mean by um, not a lot of relationships can survive that kind of ultimatum, but she now has an associate's degree in addiction counseling. Uh, she's, you know, stayed clean all these years, maybe seven years now, um, and more power to her. Uh, I think she understands herself a lot better. And that was really the beginning of my journey. Like everything else is preamble. So since then, um, I was sort of, what's the... I don't want to be too metaphorical about it. We separated, we divorced, and now I'm living the life of a bachelor again, and I have a lot to figure out. So I have just brought you up to, you know, probably 2016 or something like that in my life. I eventually reached um, like 190 pounds, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I looked a lot better, but I still felt fat. Mm. Uh, my, you know, my body fat came down, but it was still 20%. And I thought, I don't see 180 in my future. I don't, th I don't think I'm ever going to be one of those guys that fits into the insurance tables, you know. Um, and I got a scare. Uh, I had gotten my labs back. Um, now I'm, you know, out on the dating market and I'm more self-conscious about my wardrobe and I'm trying to figure out what dating is like. Uh, I'm trying to figure out health. I'm trying to figure out, um, who am I going to turn myself into? I got all my blood work done. You know, my omega sixes are way out of whack. I'm learning a few things. Uh, my cholesterol is all high. It turns out that's a good thing, you know, because my triglyceride to HDL ratio is doing great. Um, and my prostate-specific antigen is way too freaking high. It's like seven. What the hell is PSA? So I got to go and I got to 
internet search around and learn about them, that means I'm at an elevated risk for prostate cancer. Well, damn it, Nathan. Now I'm like, did I just have difficulty urinating? What, like, I'm looking for all these other symptoms that are running through my head. Was that difficulty or was that just, I don't know. Like, what, what are you supposed to do? If I were married and had kids, they'd say, Dad, you got to get to the doctor. You know, my wife would say, oh, you, should, you have to get that checked out. But I'm not. I'm, I'm, it's just me now, right? And so I started talking to guys, uh, some of them older, some of them younger, and it's such an awkward conversation. Guys don't talk about this anywhere near, you know, a woman has a pap smear, and then the next thing you know, it's the topic of lunch for her and the whole social matrix. Like, they'll <laughs> talk about these things. But dudes aren't going to bring it up. So for me, it's kind of awkward. And I'm like, you know, um, I had a PSA test done the other day. And uh, <laughs> a guy might be like, yeah. <laughs> like they're revealing nothing. I say, well, it came back a little high. Yeah. Well, it was seven, you know, and I did. Yeah. And I'm like, well, have you ever done this? Yeah. <laughs> and once you get them going, it uh, turns out half my friends have had biopsies or prostatectomies, and I'm talking to them about this. And this is not a good time for me to go two years without an erection. Like, I, I'm trying to figure out women and what I want my life to be like. And so I'm like, the hell with that? I'm not going to get the biopsy. I'm not even going to go in for the exam. I'm not going to touch any of this allopathic medicine, nothing. By this time, I was taking cold showers. Um, my partner Jason and I were doing ice baths, you know, where you buy like 200 pounds of ice and you put it in the tub. And uh, it's Phoenix. It all melts. Like, we weren't satisfied with that. There's nothing on the market that we could buy that would make ice. So uh, we got a freezer compressor and we got copper coils and we got a tub. And we're, you know, trying to figure out how to wrap things up. And we'd made these working prototypes. So by this time, um, I had an ice bath on my porch. You know, it was like the fourth forge we ever made. And I'm scared. I knew enough about uh, managing blood sugar and I knew enough about diet because my son was diagnosed with diabetes when he was six years old. I, I knew some things about metabolism and um, instead of going to the doctor, I said, I'm going to treat this thing with ketosis and ice baths. I'm going to cycle myself in and out of keto. Um, and I know the ice bath can help with that and I'm going to see where I stand. Sure enough, it took less than six months. I brought my PSA down to 0 0.8, which is totally out of the risk zone. And, you know, what was I, 52 or something like This is almost five years ago. And I'm checking all these labs. And one of the things, you know, male health profile or whatever. So my PSA looks good. Congratulations. And my testosterone went through the roof. Now, I'd had good testosterone. I was like 700 or something. But it came back, and uh, the way it works in my lab, if something is out of range, it comes with a big red, like, exclamation, H for high, or L for low, or whatever. And there it was in big frickin' red letters. 1178 nanograms per deciliter. It's 
off the gall dang chart. So I had to look that up. Turns out I had the testosterone of like an oversexed 19 year old and I'm walking around 53 year old man. Jason says, well, that's just because, you know, you're out on the dating market and, you know, the, like when you're married and you have kids, your testosterone goes down and you've lost a lot of weight. And there's all these other peripheral factors that can contribute and they can, but they don't take a 53 year old fat guy up to 1178. So I said to Jason, well, have you been checked? And he's like, why would I? I said, because we're trying to do something. We're trying to understand health here. And he goes, that's a good point. So every birthday he gets checked. He went up from 550 to like 917 doing the same thing that I was doing. And that was ice baths. And then, you know, it was kind of by accident. After the ice bath, you come out and it's cold. Especially, you know, in Phoenix, it might get down to 40-something degrees. It's really not bad. But I get out of the ice bath and I'm chilly. So what am I going to do? Some jumping jacks, some push-ups, some steel. It doesn't take a lot. Turns out there's this study in Japan. 1991, they took a bunch of Japanese college students and they put them on the exercise back, put them in the ice bath. And this is the way most people do it. Ice bath for exercise recovery. But when they did it that way, testosterone boom, went way down. And then they switched it. And I don't know why they switched it, because nobody in the early 90s was doing this. But they said, okay, we'll do the ice bath first, then we'll do the exercise. Testosterone, way the hell up. I went to my urologist with this report. And he said, okay, Tom. You know, he was about my age. And uh, he didn't let on that he thought I was juicing. Oh, He's wow. like, well, there's just one more test you want to do. Well, well, I'm going to send you back to the lab. We'll get your... And he didn't even tell me what it was. It turns out to be luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone signals the, the gonads to produce testosterone. If you're on some kind of testosterone replacement therapy, or if you're supplementing with exogenous testosterone, your uh, testicles and your bloodstream, plenty of testosterone. You don't need any luteinizing hormone. So your luteinizing hormone will be depressed. And he wanted to know. So I get this other one checked. It's off the freaking charts. Big red exclamation mark again. It's all naturally stimulated. Jason repeats the thing. And it turns out accidentally, I was doing exactly what the Japanese study did, reversing it. I was doing the ice bath. I'm not working out. You know, I do my ballet class which is not the most masculine testosterone and Jason's like yeah but you're surrounded by beautiful women you know uh, and maybe that's a really good thing uh, but he is married living with his wife he's got kids and he was running at about 9.20 by the time he instituted this program. So I wish we had like some official, I should write a book called The Testosterone Protocol and put myself on the cover with a steel mace and stuff like that. But the fact is, you do the ice bath, you get out, you do some jumping jacks, do some push-ups, do some pull-ups. I really like the steel mace. Jump some rope. Just, it does not, doesn't take a lot. It was just 20 minutes of exercise bike that boosted all these college students' T-levels. We are meant, as men, to maintain healthy levels of testosterone, and it ain't what they call normal. Normal is now sick because they assay a whole swath of the population. We say, well, we pulled testosterone samples from 10,000 guys, and they averaged 400. So 400 is normal. 400 is sick. We are, you know, evolutionarily, 
wired to maintain healthy, and by healthy, I mean like 900, 750, something up there that other people would, you know, your doctor would say, well, you're doing great. Not normal. Mm. Uh, And there's no reason we can't keep that. So anyway, I wrote this article, which you've read, and somebody posted a comment, and they were like, yeah, but Dr. Seeger, how are you doing now? Um, I'm in a monogamous relationship. I'm dating a woman with four daughters. Um, it's the closest facsimile to, you know, being married. I'm not out there playing the field or going to the clubs or anything like that. And it's a fair question. I've gained probably 20 pounds since my last test. So you got to think if this whole protocol, the ice bath exercise protocol, if it's any good, um, it, it better show up in my bloodstream. So frankly, Nathan, I was a little nervous, but I, I go to the lab. I'm like, I wonder what's going to, 1075. Wow. It's like, it's still, it's not bad for a 56-year-old fat guy. There's no reason I'm in, in my head to be at 400 because you can find enough cold. You don't have to buy a $10,000, you know, Morosco, but um, the ocean is great. Uh, South Africa, Tim Noakes is South African, if I remember correctly. And when Louis Pugh was going for some cold water swimming record, I think he went to South Africa to swim in the cold ocean there, and Tim Noakes supervised the swim. Most people can find some cold. What I love about your story is basically you've made a point of mentioning a few, I think you call them like pivotal points or inflection points. And it's the the reason that that things have shifted in the positive direction is because, well, at least what I'm hearing is that you've taken responsibility. Is that when there were those moments where you could have either collapsed or gone deeper into like the blame and the judgment and pushing it outward, you went, okay, this is clearly about me. And yeah, other people have their own things, but what about me? Like, how can I show up differently in this situation? I think really right now, as we are navigating a really weird time in human history of where there's like this top-down push for like like the food pyramid. I mean, have you seen that list recently where they show the most recommended foods? And it's, I think, like Cheerios or somewhere near, or, or Lucky Charms are near the top and, and meat and eggs are literally at the bottom. I mean, it's it's astonishing. Anyway, My mother but, could but have the, written the it. question. I, it's very diverse, right. <laughs> small planet. Yep. Right. So, so the question I want to ask you is, uh, I saw that you, you're working with something or you've developed something that you call self-actual engineering. And so for, I'm really wanting to be in service to whoever's listening to this. Um, obviously, having heard your journey, which I think is a beautiful example of, of a journey of transformation, of, of taking the opportunity to learn from life's lessons and actually at some point go, you know what, I can't keep listening to the society because it's making me sick. So what can I do instead? And so the question I'd like to ask you is, what is self-actual engineering and how can we use it, as you say, to redesign ourselves, our relationships and our lives to realize more of our fullest potential? Um, So I'm glad you asked because there's no such thing as self-actual engineering. It's something I made up. Uh, You know, I didn't have a word for what I wanted to do. Um, I read a book called Maslow on Management. There, all the great you know, psychologists seem to come from Vienna. 
There must be something in the water in Vienna. You have Freud, you have Adler, you have Viktor Frankl. Um, the two most famous American psychologists are probably B.F. Skinner, who's famous for teaching you know, pigeons how to play ping pong, and Maslow. And while Viktor Frankl was in a Nazi concentration camp, Maslow published something called A Hierarchy of Human Motivation. Now, he's a really interesting guy. Maslow did his doctorate with Harry Harlow at University of Wisconsin-Madison, which probably means nothing. You're like, but do they have a good rugby team? You know, but in the United States, it's a prestigious public university. And Harry Harlow's thing was torturing Reese's monkeys. So Maslow is a, a student. Now, let me put some perspective on it. What do I mean by torturing? Um, Harlow would create these experiments where he would remove the infant monkey from the mother and he'd put it in a cage. And in the cage, it had a chicken wire facsimile of a mother with a, you know, a baby bottle coming out where the nipple is supposed to be so the monkey could feed. At the time, B.F. Skinner's ideas on operant conditioning dominated the American school of thought in psychology. The infant only bonds with the mother because it is the source of sustenance. This was the height of the Industrial Revolution. And Skinner's you know, teaching pigeons to play ping pong by rewarding them with food pellets was the ideal psychological paradigm for the factory. All you have to do is gather these workers and set up a system of punishments and rewards and they will mold themselves into the machine and behave in the way that you want them to behave to make you rich. So operant conditioning is a pretty low level of understanding of psychology and it's meant to make good factory workers. Skinner was in the service of the Industrial Revolution. But Harlow who doesn't sound, I've never met him and I don't know him, but these, from our modern perspective, these experiments sound incredibly cruel. Harlow is testing this operant conditioning hypothesis. And when you think about how cruel child labor is and how cruel the factories were, at the time, 1930s, maybe it didn't seem like such a bad thing to put a monkey in a cage and give it a bottle. A lot of orphans were metaphorically raised in cages like this. So... He's testing this idea. Is it just the sustenance? Is it just the food? So then he eventually he separates the bottle. He puts the bottle on one side of the cage and he puts this chicken wire facsimile of a mother on the other side of the cage. And he's got this infant monkey. Maybe infant isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. A juvenile Reese's monkey. And then he scares it. Which way does it run? Does it run to the bottle, which feeds it? Or does it run to the chicken wire, you know where it goes. It goes to the one where he tied buttons, where the eyes are supposed to be. And he put like a little sweater on a piece of the chicken wire so that the monkey would have something soft to cling to. Mm. Operant conditioning is bullshit. It's not that it doesn't work. It's not like we can't train people or pigeons or whatever. But what Harlow showed is that there's a deeper attraction. There's something more fundamental between the child and the mother. Now we know a lot more. We know about oxytocin. We know about vasopressin. We know about the neurochemistry of bonding. Didn't have that at the time. So Maslow, most famous American psychologist ever, is a young man and he's growing up 
in uh, you know this lab environment where they're torturing monkeys like they're factory workers to try and prove something about the human condition. It's 1943. What does Maslow begin to study? He starts as a sex researcher. He's like, well, what is love? You know, what? And he starts, you know, interviewing college students about their masturbation habits and their dating habits and stuff, which was very ahead of his time in a way, right? In 1943, he publishes The Hierarchy of Human Motivation, and sex is not anywhere in it. He doesn't touch it at all. Whatever his curiosity was, something in Maslow was like, I'm out. I'm not going to do that n- anymore. I've, I've learned enough. There's something about the operant conditioning. We need safety. We need security. We need shelter. And it's at the, he put it at the very bottom of his hierarchy of human motivation. Uh, these hedonic drives. That's where Freud lives. It's all about sex and pleasure and security and safety. And then he said, you can go a little further up. No, 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 it's about interpersonal relationships. It's about social acceptance. It's about being loved and a sense of belonging. That's where Adler is. All psychological problems, Adler would say, are interpersonal problems. It's the drive to control other people, to, uh, it's the status hierarchy. This is what motivates. So, uh, Freud's like, it's all about the hedonic pleasure. And uh, Adler would say, no, no, it's about interpersonal power. And Maslow says, no, I've seen more than this. It's about self-esteem. It's about mastery. It's about realizing your fullest potential. And he coined this phrase called self-actualization, which means nothing. As far as I can tell, I'm like, you know, you had another 50 years, or give or take, 40 years. Could you tell us what this means? And it's been very controversial. And it's this idea of realizing your fullest potential. And I don't really buy it. But I do know that we will give up pleasure. We will give up acceptance, sense of belonging. We will go our own way because we're working on something in ourselves. Maslow isn't wrong when he said, you know, we do have this drive towards mastery, autonomy, and self-esteem. But then Frankel is released, he's liberated from the concentration camps. And um, he eventually publishes a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And I'm going to kind of condense it. Um, Man can withstand almost any deprivation if he has a reason why. Because he saw it in the concentration camps. It is the people who had meaning to their lives who lasted the longest. If you had, he goes, we knew a guy would be dead in the morning if he lit a cigarette at night. Because cigarettes were currency. And if you're going to light that up, it means you've given up. And when you give up, you're going to die. So Frankel challenged this idea that the hierarchy that Maslow built had to be filled in from the bottom. You don't need to satisfy your safety, shelter, food, sex needs, your hedonic needs, and then move up, and then move up, and then you move all over the place. It's a complexity of human motivations. And Maslow got turned into the hierarchy of human needs rather than human motivations, which is what he originally uh, published. So, you know, I'm in this reflective period of my life, and we're starting a company. I read a book called Maslow on Management, and I'm becoming kind of a fan of Abraham Maslow 
in general. Now, when it was first published, it was called something like Eupsicurian Psychology or some obscure, like it, I butchered the title. But the idea was positive psychology. So much of psychology is focused on the deranged and the disordered. And Maslow's like, hey, what about the people who are pretty much basically okay? Do we, do we ever study them? And so it got republished in a much more alliterative and catchy title called Maslow on Management. And it was when he went to, he spent a year or something in a Silicon Valley firm just studying how people work. And what I got out of that as a teacher is that you cannot take someone who's at one developmental stage and pretend that they're in another. Here I was thinking that the best thing I could do as a teacher was grant autonomy to my students, give them independence, give them the freedom to explore. And what Maslow taught me was you're just scaring the shit out of them. Like at the stage they are, I got a 20 year old engineering student and most of them are gonna be, just tell me what to do. Tell me what problem worksheet I'm supposed to do. Tell me what the right answers are. Just tell me how I can graduate get a good job, pay these student loans, and make my parents proud of me. Not everybody is looking for this self-directed, autonomous freedom. Some people are just going to panic, is what Maslow said, because you're throwing them back on their own resources, and they don't feel capable of figuring out fluid mechanics for themselves because you gave them the freedom, you know, to invent Bernoulli's equation or whatever the hell it's going to be. You know, this is the way we work in engineering. And I'm like, oh, I've been a jerk. And it, I was ready for that because one of the things that I got from Al-Anon was the realization that I'm an asshole. And look, I got at least 20 years of blaming other people. Nathan, I'm really good at it. I have a lot of practice. And I went into Al-Anon and it was an all men's group. The mixed groups are much gentler with one another, I think. But you, this group anyway, you know, in Phoenix, all men, I go in there and I'm like, yeah, this is my situation. You know, my wife's a drunk and uh, giving her an ultimate wah, 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 wah. And um, they listened to me. And one of the guys said, well, you're an asshole. Why am I? Me? I'm not the one. Look, I've already quit drinking. You know, I've blah, blah, blah. And uh, he goes, no, you're treating your wife like she's some kind of grown up. Well, she is a grown-up. No, she's not. Her brain stopped working the moment she started drinking. How old was she when she started drinking? And I'm like, well, you know, probably 17. And they go, you're married to a 17-year-old, they said. Because once she starts drinking, she starts, stops developing. And I thought, holy shit. That makes sense. If I reframe my marriage as now you know she's a year older than me but if i reframe it as i'm married to someone who's developmentally stopped growing when she was 17 then her behavior makes sense and my expectations of her all false this guy in Alanon, he says you're treating your wife like she's some kind of self-determined mature adult she's a brain damaged drunk and i was like i'm an asshole because you can't take a brain damaged drunk who's been drinking for 35 some years and expect her to make mature well-reasoned choices i had to make a change and the analogy is i can't expect that everybody comes to me in the classroom or in 
the, at work, you know, at Moraz Co. Forge. And they're ready for this autonomy and this mastery and this self-act and stuff. Some people, they're, they're at different places in the pyramid, you know. They, they want to be told what to do because they get safety and security and a paycheck. And that's right for them. So I thought, uh, all of these psychologists, they're all right. They're incomplete, but they're right. What am I going to do? I'm no longer interested as an engineer in working at the bottom of the pyramid. Because what do civil engineers do? Oh, Nathan, you don't have clean water? I can take care of that. You don't have a road? I can do that. You need a house? I can do that. Where do civil engineers work? At the bottom of the damn pyramid. Food, shelter, clothing, basic infrastructure. I t my whole career has been at the bottom of the damn pyramid, except I'm a teacher. And so, you know, I want to develop human beings. I want them to learn. I want them to obtain mastery and self-esteem and all that stuff. I said, screw that. I'm not doing civil engineering anymore. I'm going to do something different. Now I don't have a word for it, but it was inspired by Maslow. It's now self-actual engineering. How would you redesign yourself to actualize more of your full potential? to work higher in the pyramid. What is it that you're working on? Well, I'm out in the dating world. I want acceptance. I want belonging. I want close relationships. I want a, a sense of my own self-esteem. I want autonomy. I want independence. I want all these. Th and at the very top, where Frankel resides, I want a meaningful life. What is it that I'm going to do with all of these skills, educationally, vocationally, that I've accumulated in the first 50 years of my life, what am I going to do with the next 50 years that is meaningful? Um, so yeah, I started the Substack Self-Actual Engineering. I don't know if anybody can find it because the number of people Googling Self-Actual Engineering is zero. You know, nobody's going to stumble <laughs> across this thing. They're going to come, to, I don't know, they're going to see something else like testosterone and they're going to say, well, who the hell is this guy? And they're going to look it up and they're going to see some of my you know, my personal, my relationship history and things like that. And it's all oriented along this idea of working. Plenty of people are doing the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, you know, my friend Ryan Stone, he'll help you get laid. He's working at the bottom of the pyramid. Dating coach, pickup artist, whatever the literature is out there. Plenty of people who advise, you don't need me for that. I'm working at the top. And the only way to work at the top is to work on yourself. And... So how would you say, like, I, I mean, I know we actually don't have that much time left, so I just want to, maybe let's finish it with one more question um, and just, no, I know you need to go soon. So, so the question is this, this podcast is called We Are Already Free. And so using your lens as, as an engineer, as a self-actual engineer at this point, uh, who's helping people to find meaning and move higher up that pyramid where actually realizing that if I have meaning in my life, then I can put up with less comfort and I can actually celebrate less comfort and less of the, the things I thought I needed before I could do anything else, but because I have meaning. So when... Uh, through the lens of we are already free, how would you invite someone using these last few minutes to 
step into that journey of self-actual, being a self-actual engineer of their own transformation so that they can basically remember that foundation that we are actually already free and we do have a choice no matter what the outside world looks like. How would you approach that? So here's my first reaction. <clears throat> Your podcast is, we are already free. And my first reaction is, no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, you, you have this aspirational uh, title. And um, we think we have one idea of what freedom is. Um, I wasn't free. So, I'm, you know, when I say, no, you're not, uh, I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm, I'm really just projecting my own experience. I thought I was free. Not tenured professor. What could be more free? And the answer was the uh, cages are all up in here. There was a time when um, I wrote an article, why I have obsessive thoughts. If I'm free, then why do I have all these thoughts that I don't want? Now, it turned out later, I read a book by Daniel Amen called Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. He calls them automatic negative thoughts. And it's true. There are things that I couldn't do. And one of them was control my own thoughts. What a... I, I thought I was in charge up here. And it turns out not. What's really in charge is a whole bunch of unresolved trauma. A whole bunch of things that um, happened to me, they weren't my fault, but they happened to me. And as it turns out, I am hardwired because I am a mammal to seek out resolution of my trauma by reliving it from a position of control. I had no idea. I had no idea until I'd read Harvell Hendricks and his Imago Theory. That's really good. I read Peter Levine, Unspoken Voice, Waking the Tiger. I read Bessel van der Kolk, um, The Body Keeps the Score. I read uh, Pete Walker, Complex PTSD. I read um, Alice, uh, her name escapes me, reading a lot on trauma. And it was... Um, a quest. I was trying to understand a woman that I was dating, and I was trying to understand myself. And I was trying to understand why my marriage and my relationships weren't working out the way I wanted them to work out. And I was trying to understand why I felt and thought and saw things that, why was I experiencing life the way that I was experiencing it? Uh, and I got, I mean, writing is great therapy because language is a technology for improving the quality of your thoughts. And until you put it down in writing, sometimes you don't even know what it is. And then you read it and you're like, well, that's not quite right. And then you revise it and it, it becomes a much better story. Turns out that reliving your trauma from a position of control can happen in your imagination. It can happen in an improvisational theater sketch, and Vander Kolk's got a whole chapter on it. It can happen, there's something that kids do when they play, it's called a do-over. So you're on the playground, and you know you have rules, and you're playing a sport, and there's some dispute. You were out of bounds. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. I saw your foot, you know, and there's no, nobody's having any fun anymore because you're just arguing. And so somebody will say, let's have a do-over, and you just play it again. And everybody agrees that whatever the outcome is, that's fair. And then you move on and you have fun again. Well, <clears throat> in my relationship, sometimes now we'll get into, you know, this. And then we start arguing about the argument. I don't even know what we're arguing about. And I say, can we have a do-over? And she's learned enough to say, okay. And whatever the conversation was, it sounds childish because it is. I'll say, okay, I'm going to say this and you say this, but now I'm going to say this instead. 
Nathan, it's amazing because it erases the old experience. Whatever the old argument was, we come to this agreement that nobody's going to argue about whether your foot was out of bounds anymore. And whatever I said, I take it back. You know, which is another thing that like nine-year-olds can do that grown-ups stop doing. So we do a do-over and we get a much more satisfying resolution of the conversation. And that's the one that counts. When you do that, the trauma is resolved because you now believe that you're in control. And when I face this situation again, when I face abandonment again, when I face uh, bullying Again, when I face whatever it was, and what will traumatize a four-year-old will not traumatize a 14-year-old. Don't judge yourself for the traumas that you carried from, you know, when you were a defenseless child and think, if only I'd been tougher, because you weren't. If, it, you, if you were 14, that movie never would have scared you. But at four, you know, it, it could be trauma. For me, it was The Wizard of Oz. I had to figure that one out. But here I am now. When you are convinced that you can handle it, when you've mastered it because you've replayed it from a position of control, it doesn't come up anymore. You still have the memories, but you no longer have the emotions that are associated with the memories. Now you're free. Now you're free because your thoughts are your own. Your feelings are your own. And so for me, it was a series of identifying and dismantling trauma I didn't even understand. And here's the bitch of it. Some of it wasn't even mine. It turns out that there's something called epigenetic intergenerational transfer of trauma. And to condense all that down from a you know, science journal where it means you inherited this trauma from your parents or your grandparents. And there's some really good case studies. So I went on Ancestry.com to try and understand my ancestors a little bit better. It turns out my grandfather, for whom I am named, Thomas. He was eight years old when his father died. What kind of trauma do you think my grandfather Thomas is going to be carrying around? Do you think maybe it could be abandonment? And like, I wasn't abandoned when, you know, not really. What the hell is going on? Why did I marry a woman who could not possibly live by herself? Why did I choose an alcoholic? Because she could never leave me. You know, she's, who's going to hold her hair back while she's vomiting into the toilet? You know, she can't get a job. She, problem solved. I can't be abandoned now. But whose trauma am I working on here? God, it wasn't even mine. And that sounds so foo-foo, like voodoo doll astrology out there that I had to get into the journal articles. And sure enough... Um, there's a lot of good stuff on Holocaust victims. Um, there's, uh, there's a great case study in this book called It Didn't Start With You. And it was a Cambodian-American child. His parents were born in Cambodia. They'd lost relatives in the killing fields when the Khmer Rouge came. They came to the United States. They escaped. They didn't want their child to have anything. They didn't even want him to know. But his body knew. Because when we're traumatized, the DNA, uh, it, the DNA itself is not modified, but expression of the DNA is modified at a chemical level. It's either methylated or it's coded in some other way so that some genes are upregulated and other genes are suppressed. Those genes can be passed on. There's some really good experiments with rats. Seven generations of trauma can be carried in expression of the gene. 
so the child, the Cambodian American child, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how to say it, except he was all messed up. He was having um, fantasies. His play was violent. The parents didn't understand. The therapist was able to identify the um, examples of trauma that have been passed down to him epigenetically and resolve them with a different story. Storytelling, it ex ha takes place in our imagination. And the cells of your body don't know the difference between imagination and reality. They have no choice. They're responding to what the brain is telling them to the respond to. So the story that you tell yourself is much more important than the experience that you had. It's how do you make meaning of that story? There's Frankel again. And how do all the cells in your body respond to the chemistry and the nervous system, the electrical impulses that are coming out of your imagination and telling them what to do? So they created two rituals for their child. One was at the Buddhist pagoda. I'm getting that wrong, but I can't remember. There was one with a spiritual religious component. And the other was uh, they put a picture of his grandfather who was murdered by the Khmer Rouge uh, over his bed. And they told him now who his grandfather was. And in the way that you would explain it to a child, um, how he died, and they said, your grandfather loves you. He's watching over you. Kid, um, he used to play with this coat hanger. He would pretend it was a weapon and he would stab the couch cushions, you know, and he would say, die, die, die. He's five. It's not like he watched Star Wars and, you know, it's just some violent video. Like, where did he get this from? Two weeks later, he gave the coat hanger back to his mother. He said, I don't need this anymore. Because his grandfather is watching over him so you can understand. It's powerful for me. Yeah, man. And um, nobody's like, this is a story. It's in my head. Who's watching over Thomas, my grandfather? Is he watching over me? Or is it my turn? to watch over him and got sorted out. Uh, that's where I am. Mm. Am I free? Like, you're already free. I'm not there yet, Nathan. I'm still working on it. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I hear you, Thomas. Well, thank yep. you so much for that story. I mean, to me, we are already free is really like a mantra. It's, it's right. the invitation. It's the reminder that at some level, the level that is the level of, of energy flowing in and out of reality, that at that level, we are truly all already free. And the beauty of this work and the reason I love doing this podcast is because these kind of conversations, it helps us to find the places where we aren't free so that we can return. And that story you've just told me is like, I don't even have the words for it. It's so heartbreaking and so beautiful to it. be learning these medicines that we can be free we can heal by retelling our stories by meeting our ancestors in new and different ways and by doing the healing that they never had the chance to do and so i just really honor honor you for for that and for sharing and for your vulnerability and and really thank you again i i, I want to bring this to a close because i know you got to go but thank you so much for this opportunity to sit with you and to hear your story and i feel like we've only just it was like a, an introduction so let's do this again sometime we can do it again and it'll uh, be all right <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> thank you nathan it's been a pleasure meeting you
Thank you. And I'll share all links to you and everything in the show notes. So don't worry like about that. that. I'll share that yep. with everyone. Yep. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely direct everyone to your page. But I know you got to go. So thanks again and, and blessings on the path. I look forward to connecting again soon. It's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again, Thomas P. Seeger. At the end there, your vulnerability, you really just broke my heart wide open. And I am so grateful. <laughs> This is why I love these kind of conversations, like just getting to be real together, share our pain, share our joy, share our passion, the things we really care about. So to you listening, I hope that this brought you value, this story of one man's journey of losing himself, finding himself. And as that journey continues, discovering, rediscovering every day what it means to be human, to show up in the world. And I certainly love his Morozko Cold Forge and they're helping lots of people around the world with their ice cold baths, their ice plunges. And yeah, just just really good to hear such a human story. It, it, it fills my heart. You can find links to Thomas's blog, which I do really recommend. He writes beautifully about all things kind of health, cold, immersion related, if that's anything that you're into. He also writes about generational trauma and how we can work with that. So again, that's linked in the show notes, which you can find on whatever app you're currently listening to, or just go to alreadyfree.me forward slash 007. Good episode. And uh, yeah, if you're feeling a call after listening to that, if you've, you kind of want to make some changes in your life and you want to get started, I really recommend starting small. Just small, consistent action is really one of the most powerful things that you can do. I know my own tendency is to go all in, where it's just like I'm now going to do, <laughs> I'm now going to do three hours of morning routine or morning practice or an hour of breath work or whatever it is. But really, if you can just start with five minutes of either breath work or meditation or journaling just do that every day and commit to that and make that your one commitment even if nothing else happens start there and grow and build on that I promise you the person you are in a year will be so grateful for whatever small actions you consistently take day by day as always if you enjoy this podcast please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a star rating on Spotify or share it from whichever app you listen on uh, you can just go to alreadyfree.me forward slash review if you do want to leave a review. It makes a huge difference not only to the algorithm of these platforms that helps it to be seen by more people, but it also makes a difference in my heart because it lets me know that you're out there and that you're listening and that you're what the value is that you're receiving. It, it, it just gets me so, such a juiced up, like really beautiful, abundant feeling of, of connection with you. So until next week, I wish you all the blessings on your path. And please know that you can always reach out to me via voice note on either Telegram or Instagram. Just go to alreadyfree.me forward slash 007 and you will find links to both of those platforms there. Just leave me a voice note. We'd love to hear from you. I'd love to share your voice note on this podcast in a future episode. And yeah, I love being me with you. Thank you. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, we are already free. Thank you.